And we're going to continue our study in the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 4. Got some notes in the bulletin for you if you wanted to use those. And we'll continue our study. And now we're heading towards the middle and the end of Ephesians chapter 4. Just to bring you up to speed, some of you haven't been here with us in our study of Ephesians. We went through the first three chapters, pretty much paragraph by paragraph uh, of Paul's thought. And the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul was laying down biblical principles, a foundation, if you will, and theology and doctrine and teaching. And then in the last three chapters, based on everything he laid down, in the last three chapters he's emphasizing how we're supposed to live. So four through six is more practical living of Christianity. And um, a lot of imperatives were commands. It's, it's very real to life, uh, things we have to contend with and deal with every day in every area of our life. And so we're probably going to slow down a little bit and take it little by little because there's just so many wonderful things that we need to think about and try to understand and then try to apply to our life in Ephesians 4 through 6. So it's going to be very practical. It's going to intersect with just about every area of life that we live, especially family living, which is very important. But uh, the bigger topic at hand is how we're supposed to get along in the local church. So that's also highly significant for us as a church as we're trying to get off the ground and, and grow as God would have us grow. So we covered Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 was... A couple of themes there that Paul was talking about. One of the main themes was Paul was telling us how a church really grows, and God told us how to do that, how a church grows. Also, there are a couple other uh, themes running along that is that true growth manifests itself in unity. True believers will get along and they will be united with the right attitude, serving one another. So there has to be unity to have true maturity and spiritual growth in a church. So now we're transitioning out of that theme of true church growth. Now into a lot of individual practical principles we need to apply to our lives as Christians on an individual basis. The emphasis in verses 1 through 16 of Ephesians 4 was kind of a corporate basis. Now Paul's going to start talking to each one of us personally as an individual Christian. Things we're obligated to do and not do. So that's the transition we're about to see here. So we're going to look at verses 17 through 19 this week. And then in two weeks we'll pick up and go from 20 to 24. Then after that try to finish the chapter. Uh, So let me read, as we transition now, Paul does, uh, into real practical living on an individual basis, verses 17 through 24. Actually, I'm going to read all the way to verse 24 because it all goes together. So Paul says, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you, Christian, walk no longer just as the Gentiles or the pagans also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you would put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So in verses 17 through 24, Paul is commanding us how we should live. If you profess to be a Christian, and you are a Christian, then Paul says, then you should live like a Christian. That is the expectation. That is what Jesus expected. That is what Paul expected. That is what God expects. That is what the New Testament expects. If you profess to be a Christian, we should see it in your life, in your actions, in your attitudes, in your words. That's Paul's whole argument right here. Plain as day. This is what Jesus called the fruits of your life. 
No, you can't read the heart or the motives or the thoughts of another human being. But you can see the fruits of their life. Their actions, their words, and the way they display their attitudes through their actions and their words. So Paul says, and he says this, by the way, in 13 epistles that Paul wrote, Paul said this in every one of those epistles, constantly reminding the Christians that he used to pastor, that he used to shepherd, reminding them constantly because we forget, if you are a Christian, you need to act like a Christian and think like a Christian, believe like a Christian. So he makes this tremendous contrast in verses 17 through 24. The first three verses, 17, 18, and 19, he says you need to live like a Christian. And let me tell you what a Christian doesn't do. That's 17 to 19. 17 to 19 is how a pagan unbeliever lives. Do not model that. Don't imitate that. Don't live like that. That's what you used to be like that. So he makes it, he's being categorical, black and white, dogmatic here making a very stark contrast, clear line of demarcation of what an unbeliever's life is like so that we don't replicate that, imitate that in any way. So that's how he's going to start off. He's laying the groundwork here. You need to live godly, but don't live like this. And then he's going to finish that argument. As he makes the transition, 20 through 24, he's going to say, rather, this is how you should live as children of God. So... This week we'll look at, well, what does an unbeliever live like? Why do they operate the way that they do in every facet of their being? So that's what Paul's going to tell us. So let's go ahead and look at that. And that's why I said, uh, I titled this message, Don't Do That, because this is a command. This is an imperative. This is not wishful thinking on Paul's part. He is commanding as an authoritative representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, as an apostle of the church. He is commanding Christians, you are obligated to live this way, a holy life. It is, not the op- it is not an option for the Christian. You must. God commands you to. God will hold you accountable for it. God empowers you to. You are able, you are capable if you truly are a Christian. You must live this way. And if you're living this way, you shouldn't be living this way. So how should we not be living, Paul? Well, let's go ahead and look at that. That's verses 17 through 19. And uh, I just tried to come up with five principles or five ways that unbelievers live, not according to Cliff, but according to the Bible. According to Paul, according to Jesus, according to God. I need to say that because it's pretty harsh. I mean, as you were reading Psalm 139, wasn't it kind of hard to utter some of those very harsh words that were thrust upon us this morning? I hate your enemies. Whoa, did I just say that? Well, that's what the scripture said. That's radical. Wow. So we're looking at what God's diagnosis is of the unbeliever this morning. Because God is the creator of all men, whether you're saved or not. So God knows all people better than we do, doesn't he? And he's written it down in the Bible. So he's going to give a diagnosis of what an unbeliever is like in every facet of their personality. And he's doing that so that we will know how we should not be living as Christians. So let's go ahead and look at it. Five ways that we shouldn't be living that typify unbelieving behavior. The first one, according to Paul... As he says, unbelievers have futile thinking. Unbelievers have futile thinking. That's point number one. Uh, that's in verse 17. Therefore, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. Now, before I get to the futility part of their thinking, I want to highlight in verse 17 the word walk there. He says, you need to walk this way. Now, the word walk, by the way, Paul used that. If you remember, look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. When he started this practical session, he said, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, Christians, to walk 
in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, walk like a Christian. He says it, he repeats it again. Verse 17. Walk like a Christian. Uh, he's going to repeat it again. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Starting at verse 1. Therefore, be, imitator, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. So three times this, this walk, he repeats. He goes on. Verse 8, he's going to repeat it again. Look at verse 8. Christians, for you formerly were darkness. You used to be an unbeliever, but now you are light. You're saved in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of light. So he keeps saying this. He repeats it about five different times. Walk. What is a walk? Well, walk, because it's present tense, by the way, in the Greek, which means it's an ongoing, regular pattern of your life. This is the characteristic of your life. This is a lifestyle, he's saying. If you're a Christian, you should have the lifestyle of a Christian. You should be living consistently this way in every area of life. There's no compartmentalizing your life. You're not just a Christian at church or just a Christian in public. You're a Christian and try to honor God in every area of your life, even the private areas of your life. That's what a walk is. That's what he's saying. That's why we say, walk the talk, right? Don't just talk Christianity and profess it. You have got to walk it. You have got to live it out. And that's what he's saying. And if you talk the talk of Christianity and you're not walking the talk, then you are what? You are a hypocrite, or I would be a hypocrite. So he's talking about a lifestyle of Christianity here that manifests itself in daily living. That's another implication of the word walk here. This is just daily living. Ongoing, regular, routine, mundane things going on in your life. Wherever you are, you're always doing it as a Christian. Or at least you should be here. That's our desire. We're not going to do it perfectly, are we? It's not, I mean, we, we shoot for perfection, but we, we don't attain perfection. So it's not so much perfection in your life, but it's the direction of your life, right? We're trying to walk this way. We stumble, we fall. But we want to keep going this way. That's what he's talking about. The walk. It's a lifestyle. And that's that famous verse in Micah, chapter 6. Uh, oh man, what is good for you? You walk humbly with your God. It's the same thing. It's an Old Testament principle as well. So we're talking about a lifestyle here. So what should our lifestyle not be like? So the question is, what is the lifestyle of somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally? And this is shocking if you think about it. Because all we have to go on is what we see on the outside. We don't know the heart. But God is diagnosing the heart of an unbeliever in this passage. And it, it's, uh, it's pretty bad. So let's go ahead and look at it. That point, number one, getting back there, uh, that don't, you shouldn't walk like unbelievers. That's what the word Gentile means, by the way. A Gentile is just simply uh, a word Paul uses synonymously with somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ personally. He used the word Gentile or pagan as somebody who didn't know Christ. They're not a Christian, that's all. It's an unbeliever. That's what he's talking about. So don't live or don't walk like an unbeliever. Well, how do they... Walk, Paul. How do they live their lifestyle? What is regular routine in their life? Well, the first point is, he says, they walk in the futility of their mind, and that's where it starts. It starts in the mind. Everything starts in the mind for a human being. The way we live is based on our thinking. How we act is based on our thinking. Our emotions are based on our thinking. Did you know that? Everything in life, for the most part, is as a, as a person it comes from the mind. That's what the book of Proverbs says. As a man thinketh in his being, so is he. But the emphasis is there. As a man thinks, so is he. That's right out of the book of Proverbs. So it starts in the mind. And that's why in every one of Paul's 13 epistles, he is going after the Christian's mind, their thinking, their thought life. Guard your mind. Protect your mind. Your mind, in a lot of ways, it is like a computer, right? Right? Whatever goes in is going to come out. It's going to manifest itself outward, whether it's your mouth or your actions. Garbage in, garbage out. Holiness in, holiness out. So he starts with the mind. It's the most important. It's the starting point. What we think. 
because it's the inner man, and it encompasses all of the attributes of our life as a person. So that's where he starts. What is an unbelieving mind like? Well, it is futile, he says. This word for futile, he uses it in Romans chapter 1, 2, talking about unbelievers. It's the Greek word moron. Unbelievers are morons. That's what he said. But it's used with a different nuance the way we use it today. Uh, This word was used in the Old Testament Greek translation about 54 different times or something like that. Mostly in the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's translated as vanity. Vanity, vanity, vanity. Or emptiness, emptiness, emptiness. Or it refers to absurdity. Emptiness. Obtuse thinking is what he's talking about. It Meaningless. Absurd. These are all translations from the Old Testament of how that word was used. So that's how they think. An unbeliever, in their mind, they are obtuse in their thinking. They are vain in their thinking. They are pointless in their thinking. They are empty in their thinking. They are absurd in their thinking. They are wrong in their thinking. They are moronic in their thinking. They are off course in their thinking. They are vain in their thinking. That's their mind. God has diagnosed their mind for us. And I, I look back before I was a Christian, and, and I, I think, yeah, I was. That was me before I knew Christ. The, the thing was, I didn't know it at the time. As an 18-year-old, I thought I knew everything. I didn't need my parents' advice. I didn't need anybody's. I knew everything. According to me, I knew everything. My thinking was all right. It was okay. It was the only way. Little did I know at the time as an unbeliever, I, did, I was moronic in my thinking. And the Bible says that I was self-deceived in my thinking. Because of my sin. That's what the, the sin does. It deceives people. So you can be self-deceived in your thinking. Not only does sin twist and distort and pervert the thinking of an unbeliever in a way that they can't even see straight or literally think straight, they are satanically blinded in their thinking. That's the worst part of all. And as an 18-year-old, I didn't believe I was satanically blinded, but I was. And if somebody came up to me and told me that, I would have been offended as an unbeliever, saying, what do you mean I'm a pawn of Satan and Satan has blinded my eyes? I believe in God. That's what I would have said as an 18-year-old. But I was blinded and I was deceived. So that's where Satan starts first. He attacks the mind. And, and just to keep passing, look at 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that goes along with this truth. Like I said, this is a thing that Paul picks up on in every one of his epistles because it's so foundational. It's basic, very important. So 2 Corinthians 4, 4, again, Paul diagnosing the unbeliever where they're really at, pulling off the facade, Pulling off all the exterior stuff, all the superficiality, and getting right to the core, the heart, the mind, the spirituality of an unbeliever. They're blind. They're futile in their thinking. One of the reasons is 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, starting at verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, and he's talking about when we preach the gospel to an unbeliever and they resist it and refuse it, or they even get angry at it. They don't want anything to do with your Christianity. They don't want anything to do with your Jesus or the Bible or biblical truth, and they resist it. I see that all the time in my my life. I see it every week. I have somebody resisting what I say every week of my life, at least recently anyway. And it's relative to biblical gospel truth. And if our gospel is veiled, and they can't see it, unbelievers can't see it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Unbelievers, they can't see the truth of the Bible on their own. Why? Verse 4. Because in their case, the God of this world, that is Satan. And a lot of unbelievers, they don't believe in Satan even exists, do they? So that's a problem. So they're not even in a position to diagnose their own problem because they don't even recognize the reality of the root of their problem is satanic blindness. So they have been blinded spiritually. 
which also affects their mind, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. There it is. This is very important for us to understand. And so when you're sharing the gospel with somebody, be it especially with your relatives and your family, maybe you've been sharing the gospel for many years. How come I can't get through to them? How come my arguments aren't, aren't persuasive enough? Maybe I need to be more clever. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with their satanic blindness and self-deception because of sin. So then that brings me relief, actually, because the only thing that's going to rip away their satanic blindness is the power of God and the Holy Spirit, isn't it? So, it's, so what's our responsibility? Just give them the truth of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, said Paul, for it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, the truth, the simple truth of the gospel that a six-year-old can understand, that a PhD will stick his nose up to and resist because of satanic blindness. So we just share the simple truth with them, and what else do we do? We pray for the Holy Spirit to take off the blinders, because in the book of Acts, Paul had blinders on his eyes, didn't he? He had spiritual and literal blinders on his eyes so he couldn't see. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can rip the blinders off. And the Holy Spirit uses the truth of the gospel to rip them off. And in the meantime, we just try to be a good testimony. Live consistently for them. Uh, And that will also help efficaciously to rip off the satanic blinders and the self-deception that is blinding their minds. This is very, very important to remember and keep in mind in the forefront of your mind as you're talking with anybody who is an unbeliever. I don't care if it is a hardcore, calloused, a humanistic atheist or a very religious Mormon who is a good person or maybe your neighbor who's just an, a nice person. According to God's diagnosis, spiritually speaking, they're all in the same boat. If they don't know Jesus Christ personally and they don't know God, they are satanically blinded and deceived from sin. And as a result, their thinking is futile. It is off track. It is obtuse. And the bottom line, the sad thing is, is they have an ultimate wrong starting reference point in their own mind of how they perceive reality in the world. It's like in the movie Truman. I don't know if you saw the movie Truman, but because he had an ultimately wrong starting point of reference about reality, he was wrong about all his conclusions about everything. His world was wrong. His environment was wrong. Nothing corresponded to reality because he thought wrong, ultimately, in terms of his starting reference point. Reality was not reality because he was blinded. So it starts with having the right reference point. And an unbeliever doesn't have the correct reference point, do they? The only correct reference point for interpreting yourself and reality is the triune, almighty God of the Bible. And then he reveals, he interprets life for us, what life is really like and about. So unbelievers have the wrong starting point of trying to interpret life in their own life. They have the wrong reference point. Their reference point is what? An unbeliever's own reference point to start with, ultimately, is their own self, isn't it? That is their ultimate point of reference. It is their self. It is called autonomy, self-sufficiency. So they have the wrong reference point, and as a result, they interpret everything backwards. That's what Paul says. It's kind of like the football player, the big linebacker, who recovers the fumble at the 50-yard line, and he jumps on it, and everybody's jumping all over him, and he's rolling all over the place, and he's getting knocked in the head and everything else, and he's kind of shaking up, and and he stands up, and he's a little disoriented, and he sees, oh, and there's the goalpost 50 yards down that way, and he gets all excited. I've never scored a touchdown in my life. I'm going to run this way and score a touchdown, says big mean linebacker. So he starts running. Uh, The problem is Mr. Linebacker doesn't realize he's running the wrong way. This has really happened. But his ultimate point of reference dictates everything else in his life. So he makes the wrong assumption. That, that way is my goal. That is my touchdown. Let, he doesn't know it's actually the other direction. 
And so as he's running every step of the way, every interpretation that he makes is wrong. He sees all the fans, and it's his home field, and they're all standing up, and 60,000 people are standing up going like this, and he's thinking they're cheering him on. They're not cheering him on. They're saying, you stupid idiot, turn around, wrong way. He's thinking, they're saying, go, go, go. So he's interpreting that wrong, and he's going, he's looking at the coach. The coach is over there going like this, and he thinks the coach is excited. The coach is not excited. He is furious and embarrassed, and he keeps running, and he looks behind him, and there's nobody chasing him. And he thinks he's the fastest guy in the field, so he gets more excited. They can't get... Then he goes, and he thinks he scores a touchdown, and he just got a safety for the other team. All that just to say, everything that was going through his mind was wrong, backwards, distorted, obtuse, because his ultimate starting reference point was way off. And that's what Paul is saying. Unbelievers have futile minds, futile thinking, because uh, they have the wrong reference point. They don't start with the God of the Bible. And as a result... Everything manifest in their life is wrong and inconsistent, really, and resisting what pleases God in their life. So that's point number one. The Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. He goes on. What else is wrong about uh, unbelievers' ways we shouldn't imitate them? Well, we shouldn't imitate their thinking, which isn't oriented towards God. And another thing we shouldn't imitate, as he says, number two, is unbelievers have darkened hearts. They have darkened hearts. <clears throat> Paul goes on. Uh, walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, but rather being darkened in their understanding. So he says they are darkened in their understanding. So he's using a couple words that are very close to one another. Um, the word for mind is very similar to the word for understanding. Uh, the word for understanding in verse 18 is where we get the, literally it's dialogue. Or diagnose, where we get the word diagnose from. That's the word understanding in verse 18. They're diagnosed, and what it means to is they're reasoning processes. So it's very similar to what they think, but this this word here has to do with their heart. It's really the inner man is another way you could translate it because it's also used in the Greek Old Testament. Many times it's uh, translated as the word heart in the Old Testament, but ultimately it has to do with the inner person. Uh, and the emphasis or the nuance for this word has to do with man's morality or his ethics. And that, we know that because the emphasis also there is from the word darkened. They are darkened. So not only do they think the wrong way, their morality is messed up. So point number one was man's rationality is affected by sin. Point number two is man's morality is affected by sin. That's point number two. It's their morality is off course. And the morality is off course because it is darkened. And consistently throughout the New Testament, Paul, Jesus, John use the word darkness in reference to sin. That which is opposed to God because John said in, the, in his writings that God is what? God is light, right? And in him there is no darkness at all. So many times the word darkness and light, they have moral overtones. And look at, if, I'll just read John 1 for you. Listen carefully. This is talking about Jesus. Uh, as the word, he came into the world, he became a man, he is called the life. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, in Jesus, or the word was life, he is life, he's the source of all life. And uh, he was the life, oh, and the life was the light of men. Jesus came to bring light to men. He came to bring understanding to men. He came to bring truth to men. He came to bring purity to men. That's what light means. Uh, and listen to this. And the darkness, he came to bring light, and the light shines in the darkness. And he's talking about darkness is referring to sinful humanity, which is all of us. So the light came to live among sinful men, and the darkness did not understand the light. So sinners didn't understand Jesus, because by nature of their sin, they couldn't understand truth on their own. And then John chapter 3, listen to this. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, this is Jesus talking, by the way. But he goes on. God did not send me, or the Son, into the world to judge the world, but the world should be saved through him. Jesus came to save sinners, because they were already judged and condemned. Verse 18. He who believes in uh, the Son is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now, here's the key. Verse 19. And this is the judgment. God has rendered a judgment already. That the light is come into the world. That's Jesus. Jesus came into the world. And men, sinners, loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. When Jesus came, most people preferred their sin over the Savior. And John says they loved darkness more than light. So there's uh, consistently this word darkness is referring to sin. To morality. And they love, and by the way, in verse 19, they, the word agape is used. They agaped their sin. They agaped darkness. That word for love. That's a profound word for love, depending upon how you use it. So going back to Ephesians chapter 4. So not only is the rational ability affected and twisted and off track of unbelievers, but also their morality is twisted and darkened. So unbelievers have darkened morality in the recesses of their heart. So when they think about moral issues, they're off track. Every once in a while, they'll be on, on track. But for the most part, their worldview is off. And you consistently see that of somebody who is starting with the wrong reference point. As a matter of fact, many times in the political arena, when I hear people talking or read the newspaper or listen to radio, and you, you hear somebody that you know is probably not a Christian, or you know for sure they're not a Christian because they're antithetical to Christianity and the Bible, and they criticize the Bible, just about everything in their worldview is totally backwards and inconsistent in the opposite of what I believe, consistently right down the pike. Whoopi Goldberg has a radio talk show. I don't know if you knew that. So I, I listen to Whoopi every once in a while driving my kid to school, see what Whoopi's up to. And uh, recently, Whoopi was trying to destroy the institution of marriage. She is on a crusade to destroy the institution of marriage in America because we don't need it anymore. It is arcane. It is archaic. It is old hat. It is detrimental. We're in a new age. We don't need it anymore. And I'm thinking, oh, wow, marriage is the first holy institution that God ever created. And in Hebrews... Chapter 13, God said, don't mess with marriage, otherwise the wrath of God will come down on your head. Don't do that. So there's an unbeliever who just despises marriage, and I'm thinking, marriage is a holy institution of God. God also said uh, that he's the creator, and he created all things, and so the prominent view of unbelievers in the world is they believe in evolution because they want to get rid of a creator, right? And why do they want to get rid of a creator? Because they don't want to be accountable to him. They don't want to be judged by him. Why? Because they want to do their own thing, that's why. So you invent evolution. So that's just the opposite. And it all has to do with morality. It's a moral decision of why you reject God the Creator and ascribe to something called evolution. Or you just say, I don't know, you're agnostic. Same thing, it's a moral choice you make. Or what about the sanctity of human life in all of its forms? Whether it's euthanasia or babies who are being murdered and slaughtered. And at the same time, these people who believe that, many times, they're uh, anti-capital punishment. And God laid down capital punishment in Genesis chapter 9. And it was reaffirmed many times in the Old Testament. There are some sins worthy of death to preserve the dignity of man and the holiness of God. Jesus supported capital punishment in the Gospels. The Apostle Paul taught on capital punishment that was legitimate, that God gave to the government in Romans 13. So they want to slaughter the innocents and protect the life of a criminal. I mean, you talk about backwards, it's absolutely backwards and upside down. Their morality is backwards. It is wrong. Why? Because Paul said they are darkened, morally speaking. 
They are darkened in the way they reason, the way they process, the way they start, the way they reason, the way they end, the conclusion they come to. It is darkened with sin. They cannot see straight. Look at Romans chapter 1, because here's a parallel passage. and I just No, we'll get to that in just a second, because that's going to explain a couple of them further together. So, anyway, going on. Um, so let's look at the third point Paul makes. says, don't have the rationale of an unbeliever, don't have the morality of an unbeliever. And third point is, is he, do, he says, don't be spiritually or religious like unbelievers, because they are religious, and that's point number three. Unbelievers are spiritual zombies. What is a zombie? A zombie is a dead thing that somehow has the ability to get up and walk around. It's a living dead thing. And that's what Paul said unbelievers were. They are living dead things, spiritually speaking. To remind you, we talked about that. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, he's, he's telling Christians, he's talking to me. This is my autobiography in Ephesians 2, 1. Paul's talking to me. And you, Christian, were dead at one time in your trespasses and sins. That was true of me when I was 18 years old. I was spiritually dead. I did not know God. I had no spiritual life. And that's what Paul goes on to say here in um, Ephesians. He says, because of their futility of their thinking, because of sin, because of satanic blindness, their morality is affected, their thinking is affected, but also their spiritual capacities are affected. And he says, being darkened in their understanding, as a result, they are excluded from the life of God. Unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. Many people believe that if you're born in this world, everybody's a child of God. Right? God's the father of everybody. That is not true. God is the father of only those who know him through Jesus Christ. He adopts people into his family. And that's why Jesus said, sinner, you must be born again. Because we are born sinful. And as we, because we're born as sinners, we are not automatically a part of God's family. We must be adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ by faith. And until we do that, our status before God, religiously and spiritually speaking, according to Paul in Ephesians 4.18, is that we are excluded from the life of God. And the word for life there is Zoe. Zoe girl, you know the new popular Christian band? Those three girls that sing Christian songs? Zoe, that's where the word came from. And Paul uses it many times, as does the Apostle John for, for spiritual life. It just means being a Christian, being born again, having true vitality, knowing God in a personal and intimate way. If you're not a Christian, you don't know God in a personal and intimate way. You have no spiritual life, and I don't care how religious you are. And most of the world is religious, aren't they? As a matter of fact, uh, most people in America would say they are religious. They believe in a God of some sort. But just because they're religious and spiritual, that doesn't please God. As a matter of fact, if it isn't true religion, it's very displeasing to God. He doesn't like false religion and false spirituality. As a matter of fact, he despises it. He hates it. He condemns it. But as human beings, we were made in God's image, and God is a religious, spiritual being. And because we're made in His image, every human being that has ever created is inherently, innately a religious, spiritual being. We are. Even if you talk to an atheist, says they don't believe in God, they're worshiping something, aren't they? We were born to worship. We were created to worship. We're going to worship something, even if you're an atheist or agnostic. Uh, look at Romans chapter 1 now. We'll go ahead and look there. Because Romans chapter 1 is a parallel passage with Ephesians 4 right here. As a matter of fact, Paul's using the same argument, and he even uses some of the exact same phrases and exact, exact same words, and he's got the same argument going. He's talking about the depravity, the sinfulness of unbelievers. But he does it in more detail in the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, and just out of a few verses of doing that in the book of Romans, he does it for 11 chapters. He talks about the sinfulness of man before he gets to how Christians should live. So look at Romans chapter 1, because this kind of ties everything together and expands on it of what we're reading about in Ephesians chapter 4. 
So keeping in mind, Paul is talking about unbelievers in Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, all the way to the end of the chapter. And he's, he's diagnosing what the unbeliever is really like in their thinking, in their volition, in their emotions, in their lifestyle, spiritually speaking, where they're at religiously. He is diagnosing. This is a profile and a portrait of an unbeliever that only God could give us. And he says, starting at verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Present tense. Ongoing wrath is coming down on sinners all over the world. Do you think God is going to punish the United States someday for its sin? No, God is already punishing, has been punishing the sin going on in the United States. That's what this verse says. It's ongoing. God's wrath is continually, constantly being poured out ever since man was created against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And those two words, ungodliness and unrighteous, that's the theme for the rest of the chapter. He's going to tell us about these ungodly, unrighteous men. And he was talking about me before I was a Christian. This was true of me. Well, what about it? The first thing is they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. Did you know that unbelievers have the truth? They do. That's also a part of his argument. Unbelievers have the truth. Well, what kind of truth about God do they have? Well, First, he goes on to say that God created every human being in his image, and as a result, every human being that is made in his image has a conscience. And a conscience is an internal mechanism that God gave every human being to let them know they are a creature and that there is a creator. So there is internal truth of every person. They have a conscience. They know that a God exists. And the other thing that he says is there's an external proof he's given every human being, and that is creation. Creation is a display of his person, of his glory, of his grandeur, of his power. So every man is without excuse because of within their conscience made in his image and also because of without, because they live in God's estate. They live among his creation. The signs are everywhere. It is the handiwork of an almighty God. So every sinner is without excuse. So an atheist that comes up and says, I don't believe in God, they are disingenuous. They are deceived. They are wrong. You believe in God. You are just suppressing the truth. And the word, the Greek word there in uh, verse 18 in Romans 1, it's pretty interesting. It's a picturesque word. It's like a guy standing on top of a building, on top of a roof, uh, on a cover hole that he just came through and he put the cover back on because somebody's chasing him and the guy underneath is on the stairs pushing the lid up. And the guy on top is standing on it, like this, jumping down. He's suppressing that lid, trying to keep that guy from coming up. That is what this word is saying. Unbelievers are suppressing the truth that they know is there, in their conscience and in creation. So it's a willful suppression. But anyway, he goes on, verse 19, "...because that which is known about God is evident within them." That's their conscience, made in the image of God. "...for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world..." This is external proof. "...his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen by every creature." By virtue of being in God's estate. Clearly seen. "...being understood..." They knew there's a Creator out there. "...through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." They're culpable. Now here it is, verse 21. Even though they knew God, they didn't know Him personally, but they knew God existed. They knew God was their creator. They knew that, past tense. Even though they knew this truth. I haven't met many five-year-old atheists. Have you? If you have, introduce them to me. Because I've worked a lot with kids. Most kids believe there's a God and a creator. To get to becoming at the point of an atheist, you need some time. You need some sin to accumulate in your life. For even though they knew God as the Creator, they did not honor Him as God as their personal Savior. And it was a choice. Or give Him thanks. And they became futile, moronic in their speculations, in their reasoning process. Those are the exact same two words Paul uses in Ephesians 4. And their foolish heart was darkened. Exact same words used. Same, Same order, everything. 
professing to be wise. See, they think they're wise, like I was when I was 18 and I wasn't saved. Self-deceived, pride. They became fools, moronic again. Exchange, now here it is. I said every person is religious and spiritual and worships something. Here's proof of it. As a result, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of the corruptible man. Like, what do we have? The awards last Sunday, what was that? The Oscars. You've got people all over the world, and even the movie stars, worshiping that golden idol. This is what life is all about. This is the fulfillment, the crescendo and climax of what life is all about. Bow the knee to the golden idol of the Oscar. Some people may have had that attitude, I don't know. Um, Exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. I mean, that's a literal example, because it is in the form of a man, the Oscar award, by the way. And of birds and of four-footed animals. and Are you trying to tell me that there are people today in the 21st century who actually worship animals and birds and four-footed creatures like cows? Oh, yeah, like Hinduism. You mean like one of the largest religions in the world? Yes, they do. They worship cows. Cows are sacred. Therefore, you are not to kill cows. Holy cow. And that is where the phrase came from. That could be your great-grandma. Do not kill holy cow. And if you're good enough in this life, you might come back as a cow. Isn't that exciting? That is encouraging. Four-footed crawling creatures. Crawling snakes. Are you trying to tell me that people worship snakes in this world? Yeah, Hinduism and other religions. Therefore, God, as a result of this, this pattern of their life, their willful choice to resist God, to live in sin, God judged them for their sin. He's pouring out His wrath. And sometimes he does it in different ways. And here's one of the ways that he does it. One of the ways that God judges people for their sins sometimes is simply just letting go and abandoning them. That's kind of an unseen judgment of God. He just kind of takes his hands off. I'm not, you know what? I'm not going to protect you anymore. I've been giving you common grace. I'm not going to do that anymore. You know what? You are on your own. You are going to reap the consequences of your own horrible, sinful choices in life. So that's the way he judges them. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. I'm gonna, you want to do that? Fine, go ahead, do it. He lets them. And that's what people say, one of the arguments against God. If there really is a God, why is God letting all these evil people do what they want to do all the time? Because it says in Romans 1.24 that he gave them over to do it as a sign of judgment. That's why. You want to do that? Go ahead. God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Their bodies suffer the consequences of their sin. Anna Nicole Smith suffered the consequences of sin in her own body from an overdose of drugs. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's the problem. They worshipped and served the creature. There it is again. Every human being worships something. And if it's not a professed God, it is ultimately themselves. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is... Blessed forever, amen. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them over again. Second time, God gives them over. It's a sign of judgment. This time he gives them over to degrading passions or lusts. What are those lusts? Their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. That's lesbianism. That's what it's talking about. Verse 27, in the same way also the men abandon their natural function of the woman and they burden their desires towards one another. That's homosexuality. Men with men committing indecent acts, receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Verse 28, finally, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, third time, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Three times, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, because they will not repent. 
That's a sign of judgment, the way God gives people over in judgment. To a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Okay, going back to Ephesians 4, all that just to say, unbelievers are spiritual zombies. They are religious, but they are spiritually dead. And that's what Paul meant when he said they're excluded from the life of God. They don't have true life in Christ because of their decisions. Paul goes on. What else are unbelievers like that we shouldn't be like? Well, we're hearing this sad scenario of what unbelievers are like, that they are rationally separated from God, morally separated from God, and spiritually separated from God. That is bad news. How do they get this way? Who is to blame for this? Well, Paul tells us who's to blame. That's number four. Unbelievers are willfully ignorant. So the word there is willfully. They are willfully ignorant. Um, That's the next phrase he uses there. Verse 18, being darkened in their own understanding, excluded from the life of God. How'd they get that way? Because, so this is the reason for it. Because of the ignorance that is in them. The word for ignorance there, that's where we get the word agnostic. It's because of their ignorance. Well, how did they become ignorant? Well, the last part of the verse. They became ignorant of God because of the hardness of their heart. So their ignorance... They only have themselves to blame. So when I was an unbeliever, uh, I just had myself to blame. It was because of my sin. It was my choice, my volition. I was responsible. I did it. Just like John said, they loved their sin more than they loved the Savior. So that's what he's talking about here. So it's a willful choice. So sinners are responsible. Paul said they are without excuse. Another thing in there, uh, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. It's kind of interesting, if you'll go back to um, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, you, you might be familiar with the story of where Pharaoh wouldn't let Moses let the people go. And then in chapter 4, uh, it says that Pharaoh had a hardened heart. He had a hardened heart. And it goes on 19 more times to say that Pharaoh wouldn't obey God, wouldn't submit to Moses, wouldn't let the people go because Pharaoh had a hardened heart. And there's kind of an exchange there. It was because Pharaoh had a hardened heart. It was because of his choices. It was his wrong attitude. It was his unbelief. It was his own agenda. It was because of his pride. And at the same time, the scripture also said, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It was every time that Pharaoh made a bad decision, a sinful decision, a wicked decision, a selfish decision, one of the consequences of judgment was God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So that's one of the way, one of the ways God judges sin and judges people is He will harden your heart if you continue to resist Him, and that's why that is a very dangerous thing over time. To resist your conscience, to violate your conscience, is one of the most dangerous things that a human being can do, because God gave human beings a conscience as a warning sign that we are violating. There's something wrong in my relationship with my Creator, and if I sin against my conscience then I am violating a very basic principle. I am ignoring it. It's like, that's why we have physical pain. You cut yourself, and God gave you the gift of physical pain to warn you and let you know, ow, it hurts right here. And you look down, there's blood gushing out. So it was a signal. There is something wrong. That's what the conscience is to the spiritual man. Don't ignore your conscience. Honor your conscience. Search your conscience. But when people continue to sin the same way over and over and over again, repetitiously, they begin to desensitize their conscience, violate their conscience, and their conscience becomes callous, so that over time, sin becomes routine. As a matter of fact, sin becomes unrecognizable. And that's why in our country today, all over the place, on television, billboards everywhere, we have just grotesque, explicit sin that is unconscionable. Why? Because we've got a long history of people just violating their conscience little by little. And now it is just snowballed, where it is just impossible to even deal with. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. If they continue in their sin... 
uh, their conscience is going to be desensitized. As a result, because of the hardness of their heart, they keep sinning against God. And so he's going to pick that up. Look at verse 19, where Paul picks this up about the desensitized conscience. That's number five. Unbelievers are desensitized and, as a result, immoral. By the way, this is the exact same pattern Paul laid down in Romans chapter 1 that we saw. It started with the mind, a depraved mind, suppressing the truth you know about God, worshiping the wrong thing, having wrong morality, your conscience becomes desensitized, and then you live in profligate lifestyle and immorality. That's the progression. Um, So finally, verse 19, and they, unbelievers, having become callous, there it is, desensitized, and that's in their thinking. They have resisted, uh, they just keep violating their conscience, they keep following sin till they become callous in their understanding, callous in their conscience, and as a result of that, having given themselves over, notice, they have given themselves over. So there is, it is a willful choice on their part. And at the same time, they've got God giving them over if they refuse to repent. So it's doubly dangerous. They've given themselves over to sensuality for the practice, notice, of every kind of impurity and greediness, or every kind of, the word impure there is where we get the word catharsis, it means clean, So they've given themselves over to every unclean thing, which is just immorality, sexual immorality and immorality of every conceivable kind. They've just given themselves wholesale over, and that is typical of an unbelieving person. If if you don't see it on the outside, at least it is what is going on in their heart and going on in their mind, because that's what God said. So as a result, Paul gets very specific, very detailed, telling Christians, I want to make it very clear, here's how unbelievers live, don't live like that. They sin against God with their rational intellect, with their ethical morality, with their spiritual and religious being, with their volition and their choices. And this last one is, it is their practice that is sinful. Don't do that, Christian. And so next week we're going to see, well, okay, Paul, you gave us all the bad news and what we used to be like and what unbelievers are like. What are we supposed to do? So he's going to give us some good news and positive things to pursue in being obedient to God, and that will be in two weeks from now. Let's go ahead and pray and commit this time to the Lord and uh, thank Him for His Word, and also ask Him to help us in our lives. Father, we do thank You for our time to worship. Thank You for the new Lord's Day You've given us. God, I thank You for the beautiful weather today. Thank You for the gift of life. I thank You for salvation that comes through Jesus Christ the Lord. I thank You for the simplicity of the Gospel. It's only through the Gospel, really, in the Holy Spirit, that You save people. Thank You for those of us that You've saved who were once blind, depraved, worshiping the wrong thing, resisting you, and yet you were gracious and merciful to save us. We didn't deserve it. God, I thank you for that great gift. So I thank you for your love. And God, help us to have compassionate attitudes as we go out in the world to share good news with people so that you can save them and bring them to yourself. That's why you came. Jesus came to save sinners. And God, uh, thank you for every person that came to visit us today, especially our first-time visitors, that they would have a good time and that you'd bless our time of fellowship together as we commit all things to you in Christ's name. Amen.